0: If you would take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. One of my favorite things to do with my wife and children is to take a walk. It's a simple thing, but it seems like when we go on walks, we tend to have quality conversations that are immediately enhanced just because we're out of the house. We're away from chores, away from TV, away from school with nothing on the agenda except just to talk. Some of the best and deepest conversations I've ever had with my family or even with friends have been on walks. In fact, I find that often some of my best times of prayer with the Lord happen to be when I'm walking and praying and meditating on the Scriptures. There's something about being outside in God's creation and the simple motion of putting one foot in front of the other that helps my mind to focus on things that really matter. And that got me thinking this morning, a question that maybe you've thought before, and that is, what would it be like to take a walk with Jesus? Now I understand Jesus, of course, is omnipresent. He is in that sense with us even now, but I'm not talking about that sense. I'm talking about a physical, face-to-face walk and talk with Jesus, to hear his voice, to hear him speak of the scriptures. And to give us advice and wisdom on our life and how we should think and live. What a wonderful privilege it would be to take a walk with Jesus. Well, this morning we're going to have that privilege without ever leaving this room. Because the passage that we're going to study is a famous conversation that took place on a walk with Jesus. And so in that sense, we are going to walk with him as he has a conversation with two lesser known disciples on a road that's now famously called the road to Emmaus. And I'm praying that this passage will not only cause us to wonder anew at the resurrection of Christ, but that it will also give us a newfound uh, love for another gift that God has given to us, the Scriptures. On this walk with Jesus, we will find that though we do not have the privilege of seeing Jesus face to face in his resurrected form, at least at this point, we are not lacking or deficient because we have the scriptures. The gospel of Luke centers on the theme of Jesus as the son of man. He was the son of man that David talked about that would come and he would rescue his people. And what we find in this simple text this morning is that our faith in Jesus' death and resurrection is validated by Scripture. Our faith in Jesus' death and resurrection is validated by Scripture. Look with me now, if you're in Luke chapter 24, we're going to read beginning in verse 13 through verse 27. Verse 13, Luke writes, And behold... Two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all of this, it's the third day since these things happened. But also some women amazed us. Uh, When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. As we come to our passage, it's important that we understand the the key moments that have led us to this scene in the life of the resurrected Christ and these two men. Jesus, of course, was shockingly crucified just a couple of days ago on Friday and hurriedly placed in a tomb because the Sabbath was coming and they had to quickly get him in the tomb before Sabbath uh, took place. On Saturday, while the Sabbath was observed, of course, the disciples were broken, they were grieving, they were mourning, they were disillusioned even over Jesus being crucified. The truth is we can't possibly understand the mix of emotions that these followers of Christ must have gone through in those 48 hours that transpired from Friday to this time on Sunday. Jesus had entered Jerusalem just a week ago. Just a week ago on Palm Sunday, amidst crowds praising him, yelling Hosanna in the highest, treating Jesus literally as a king entering into Jerusalem. But by the end of the week, that same Jesus has been murdered violently, and not just murdered, but murdered on a cross. With the death of Christ, it seemed to his followers as if all hopes of Jesus as the Redeemer, as the Messiah, had been dashed on the rocks. They were they were gone. But early on Sunday morning, a group of ladies go to the tomb with spices they had prepared for the body of Jesus that they weren't able to to administer to his body after death because they hurriedly buried him because of the Sabbath day. So they go to the tomb expecting to wrap his body with these spices. And lo and behold, he's not there. They're astonished to see that the massive stone in front of the entrance to the tomb has been rolled away. Jesus is not inside. And beyond that, two angels appear to them and proclaim that he's not there because he's risen from the dead. And so they run back to tell the rest of the disciples. And the Gospel of John tells us that both Peter and John race down to the tomb. And they look inside and verify that Jesus, in fact, is not in the tomb. But the disciples still couldn't bring themselves to really believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead. It just seemed too far-fetched for them. In fact, maybe you're here this morning, and if you're honest, the resurrection of Jesus Christ seems pretty far-fetched to you as well. Well, let me encourage you that you're in good company this morning because initially, even the remaining 11 apostles did not believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it's my prayer that you, like them, and many thousands, if not millions of Christians since, will come to understand that Jesus has been raised from the dead. That brings us now to our actual narrative account that's called The Road to Emmaus that we just read together. And here we find undeniable evidence that Jesus Christ not only suffered as a substitute for sin, but rose again in victorious life. This account really is one unified story, but it breaks into several sections that we'll handle as individual scenes. That brings us to scene number one, A Troubled Journey. A troubled journey. Beginning in verse 13, it says, And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, these opening words paint the picture for us. They help us go into the scene ourselves and see it in our minds. These two men were not part of the eleven apostles, they're part of the larger group of disciples that Jesus had. In fact, it's important to understand that while Jesus did choose 12 to be his apostles, there was a very large group of believers who followed him. These two men are from that larger group. And so they're on this journey from Jerusalem to a town, it says, that's about seven miles away called Emmaus. Remember, all of the Jews would have gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover, so now it's time for them to go back to where they've come from. These two men, we don't know if they're from Emmaus or why they're traveling there, but nonetheless, they're on this this dirt road walking and talking about what's happened. Now, there's a lot of debate, to be honest with you, about what modern-day city is This city called Emmaus. But honestly, the location of the city is not really that important. What's important is what happens along the way as they're traveling to this city. Because the text goes on to say, And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. Now we can imagine this scene very easily. Picture these two men walking on a dusty first century road trying to wrap their minds around everything that's happened in the last 48 hours. Imagine the emotion and the grief and the confusion they must have been processing as they're trying to understand the myriad of events that have taken place so quickly. Understand, they didn't just hope that Jesus was the Messiah, they didn't just believe that he was the Messiah. They knew he was the Messiah. I mean, they were rock-solid convinced Jesus was the Messiah, and yet he's dead. They had seen his miracles. They, They had heard his powerful teaching. They had witnessed his spotless character. There was no way in their minds that they were wrong about the identity of Jesus, and yet they're trying to pair that with the fact, but he's dead. How do we reconcile these things? And not just dead, but murdered. And not just murdered, but murdered on a cross by the religious leaders, the leaders of their people, the people that should have been most excited to see the Messiah coming on the scene. And now this report by these ladies and Peter and John that the tomb is empty and they can't find Jesus' body, what in the world is going on? This is the the tone of their conversation. It's the kind of conversation we would be having if we were disciples two days after. So just picture how animated and emotional the tone of the conversation must have been. And as they're discussing these things, something interesting happens. It ushers us into a second scene, a mysterious stranger. A mysterious stranger. Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing. Now stop there just for a moment. That's that's not just a a mindless repetition. The word discussing is not just a way of saying talking. The Greek word for discussing means to debate. Now that's not to say they were disagreeing, but it is to say this was emotional, it was passionate. They're going back and forth, maybe this means this, well no, maybe I think it means this. It's It's a heated discussion, and in the middle of that it says Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. Now, notice how Luke introduces Jesus. He says, Jesus himself. We're intended to feel the irony here. These men are talking about what's happened to Jesus. What's the deal with this empty tomb? And here comes Jesus walking up to them. The, The irony is palatable. These two disciples are emotional, they're heated, they're trying to grapple with all of these events about what's happened to Jesus, and Luke says, Jesus himself, here he is, he's in the flesh, he walks up to them on the road. Now, we have to understand that passing another traveler walking on the road would not have been abnormal. This is, after all, how they got from place to place. They walked from place to place, especially at a, at a feast time like this, right after Passover, we would expect a lot of Jewish people to be walking from Jerusalem back to where they came from. And so it wouldn't have struck them as odd that a person walked up next to them on the road. No, no more odd than a car pulling up next to you going down the highway. But we have to wonder, why didn't they go crazy? Why are they not ecstatic about this? Jesus himself walks up to them. Problem solved. Here he is. Well, it says, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. That is, God sovereignly put a veil over their eyes in some way that were not explained how, but they were not allowed by God to recognize Jesus initially. And the idea is that Jesus walked up with them. It says he began traveling with them. So he's walking with them for some length of time, just listening to their conversation. Picture this. The stranger walks up. He's obviously a Jewish man. And so they continue talking about the situation. But they don't recognize Jesus. By the way, this has nothing to do with what some have suggested, that perhaps Jesus looked so differently in his resurrected form that they couldn't recognize him. This was a sovereign act of God. And we know that because at the end of this account, Jesus does reveal himself to them, and they immediately know who he is. So it wasn't that he looked differently. It's that God, for his own purposes... Veiled their eyes for a time so they couldn't see who he was. So that does bring up the question why? Why did God keep these two disciples from immediately recognizing who he was? Because we know that God is sovereign and God doesn't do anything by accident or haphazardly. Everything God does is for a very specific purpose. So why? Well, the scriptures obviously don't tell us why, but from the context and what happens in the passage, we can make some assumptions. The concealment of Jesus' identity is crucial to them having the conversation they're about to have. If they had recognized Jesus right away, we would have no record of this conversation. It would have been very different. And yet, they need to have this conversation that we're about to study together. Because this conversation is going to serve to bolster their faith, the faith of the rest of the disciples. And, get this, our faith. The fact that they were kept from seeing Jesus puts them in the same category as you and I this morning. So that we can learn, so that we can grow, so that we can understand that we too can have faith in the resurrected Messiah. Perhaps you're here this morning and you think that that you would believe in Jesus if you could only see him. If you could just see the resurrected Christ in the same way that these two men will later at the end of this story, then then I would believe. Well, friend, if that's you this morning, Jesus has something to say to you in this text. And we're going to see it together. Stay with me because Jesus is going to address that very line of thinking. With that in mind, it brings us now to scene number three a revealing conversation. A revealing conversation. This conversation bounces back and forth between Jesus and one of these men. The other is never named for us. The, the speaker here is called Cleopas, a man that we don't know anywhere else in Scripture, so we don't know anything about him. But he's the speaker, and it's going to bounce back and forth between Jesus and Cleopas. And so we're going to take this conversation in sections. So we're going to call them segments. It begins, segment number one, with a probing question. A probing question. Jesus speaks up first, and it says, And he said to them, verse 17, What are these things that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? Now, remember now, Jesus has apparently been walking alongside these men for some time. He's been listening in on their conversation. And at the appropriate time, he jumps into the conversation and asks for context. What are you guys talking about? Now, that seems to be a pretty straightforward question on the surface. You've probably done that on multiple occasions. When you walk up to a group of people and they're having a conversation, it's very normal to say, hey, catch me up to speed so I can join the conversation. That's essentially the kind of question that Jesus asks. But in, in this case, it's not because he lacks information. Jesus doesn't need to know what they're talking about. He knows what they're talking about. It's because Jesus is trying to provoke A very specific conversation. Jesus is a master teacher. And good teachers are are very equipped at pulling out the subject matter through questions. And that's what he does here. He's drawing out of these men what he wants to talk about with a very specific question. But the response that he gets from these men is somewhat surprising. It brings us to the second segment of their conversation. A sober response. And they stood still, looking sad. They stood still, looking sad. First of all, notice that this entire scene, to this point, has been a scene of movement. They are walking. It starts with the disciples walking. Jesus comes up walking, and they continue walking. Movement, movement, movement. Until this moment it says, "And they stood still." The first response to the question that Jesus asked is, "They stop. It literally stops them in their tracks as they contemplate the question that Jesus has asked. And not only that, but we see the story on their faces because it says they stopped looking sad. That could also be translated looking gloomy. There's grief on their face. There's a somber look on their face. Perhaps you've had a similar experience in your life when someone has asked you what's wrong or how are you doing. At a time in your life that was very, very difficult and painful, and as you begin to try to explain, the emotion catches in your throat and no words come out. That's the disciples. When Jesus says, tell me what you're talking about, it's as if the emotion and the grief comes rushing over them and they're reminded of all that's happened in the last two days. They're stopped in their tracks. There's gloom on their face. How do you summarize the context of what they've been through in the last 48 hours? How do I quickly tell you what has just happened? And not only that, but how could any Jewish person who's been in Jerusalem this weekend not know what we're talking about? And that's why Cleopas answers the way he does. They stop, and then he says this, "'One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, "'Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem "'and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days?' Certainly, if this man had been a Gentile, it would have been much more understandable, but this is a Jew. This is a Jewish man. Every single person who who took their faith at all seriously that was a Jew would have known who Jesus was. Jesus was a polarizing figure. His miracles, his teaching, the news of Jesus had spread throughout the land. That's why they all reacted the way they did when he walked into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. They knew who he was. And then, no doubt, to hear the report that that same Jesus has been crucified crucified at the hands of our own leaders, that news traveled. Everybody was talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. There was no Jew in Jerusalem that was there for Passover that could possibly have missed the news that the famous rabbi had been crucified. Let me illustrate it this way. How how surprised would you have been if you were talking to a stranger about the Twin Towers falling two days after 9-11 and they had no idea what you were talking about? you would say, what, what rock have you been living under? It's everywhere. Everyone's talking about the Twin Towers. That's how these men felt when Jesus says, give me some context about your conversation. And so, in light of that, Cleopas speaks up. And, and he asks the question, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem that hasn't heard this news? But Jesus continues to play along. He wants to hear their perspective on the events that have happened over the last couple of days, and so we come now to segment three, a purposeful ignorance, a purposeful ignorance, and he said to them, what things? In the Greek text, it's just one word. What things? Tell me about it. We're supposed to feel the irony again in this text because Obviously, Jesus knows more about the events that have happened in the last two days than these men have ever imagined. He knows it from eternity past to eternity future. He knows all that God is accomplishing through these events, and yet he asks them, what things? What things? That brings us to the fourth segment, a disillusioned account, a disillusioned account. I don't envy this man, Cleopas, who's has to summarize the monumental events that have happened over the past few days in Jerusalem. How could you possibly capture the importance of such events in words? And so he breaks down the events into three three different categories, three aspects. He sort of gives us a very summarized version in these three categories. The first aspect is a suffering servant. He tells him of a suffering servant. Look back at the text, second half of verse 19. And they said to him, The things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet. Now notice he refers to Jesus here as a prophet. And that's not inaccurate, but it is a brief explanation of a much, much grander reality when we talk about who Jesus really is. Jesus did claim to be a prophet. He was, in fact, a prophet. But he claimed to be much, much more. Let me take you to one other text in the Gospel of John that shows us exactly who Jesus said he was. This is John chapter 10, beginning in verse 24. It says, The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. So they're asking him, Are you the Messiah? Just come out with it. Tell us, Are you the Messiah? Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who's given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. Understand the importance of what Jesus says about himself in this text. First of all, he answers affirmatively that yes, he is the Messiah. But he says, I'll do you one better, I and the Father are one. Which means, Jesus just claimed to be God in human flesh. He says, I'm not only the Messiah, I'm fully God and fully man in one person. And if you think I'm overstating that, if we were to go on and read the rest of the account, the Jews pick up stones to stone him for blasphemy because they understood that he was claiming to be God. And of course, it would have been blasphemy except for the fact that it was true. He was God in human flesh. That's who Jesus is. He was not just a prophet. He's the prophet of prophets, the Messiah, God in human flesh. And because he's God in human flesh, that was manifested in how he lived. And this is the description that Cleopas now goes on to add. He says, He not only was he Jesus the Nazarene a prophet, but he was mighty indeed and word in the sight of God and all the people. First of all, Jesus was mighty indeed, which means he performed miraculous works, which validated his claims as Messiah. We know that he was the Messiah and God in human flesh because he proved it by his miraculous works. He walked on water. He gave sight to the blind. He cast out demons. He even raised men to life. He raised Lazarus to life, among others. He was certainly mighty indeed. But Cleopas says he's also mighty in word. This is a reference to the powerful teaching of Jesus. In fact, this is an interesting story. Jesus was, was such a powerful teacher. He taught in a way that, that no one had ever heard before that on one occasion, the Pharisees sent officers to arrest Jesus. And they get there to arrest Jesus, and he's teaching. He's in the middle of a sermon. And so they stop, and they listen to the sermon. And listen to what happens, John 7, 44. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken in the way this man speaks. They said, We couldn't, we couldn't arrest him. We've never heard anything like this. Jesus was mighty in word. Word. He was glorious. His ministry was powerful in both his actions and in his words. And it was testified to by God and by the people. God, the Father, verbally testified to the validity in the ministry of Christ as his son on multiple occasions. And the people at large understood who Jesus was, at least to some degree. And that's why they hailed him as king when he enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And so with the favor of God and the favor of man, it would seem like nothing bad could happen. It would seem like everything is going to be a cakewalk from here. But now we understand why they're so perplexed. Because they explain next and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. Though the Romans are the ones who physically nailed Jesus to the cross, these men rightly understand that the only reason Jesus was crucified is because the Jewish rulers had convinced Pilate to do it. It was the Jews who were ultimately responsible in that sense. And they're perplexed and they're, they're downcast because, again, Jesus did not simply die. He was murdered by crucifixion. If you weren't with us last week, we talked specifically about the crucifixion, and you can hear that message online. But let me just remind all of us that the the cross, crucifixion, was a, a form of execution reserved only for the worst of the worst criminals. Everyone agreed that those who were hung on a cross were the scum of the earth. These were the worst of the worst. And that's the way that this Jesus, mighty indeed, mighty in word, testified to by God and man, was murdered on a cross. The death of Jesus has shaken these men to their core. It's causing them to reevaluate everything they knew. And it's done so because a crucified Messiah has no place in their theology yet. it's no place. They hadn't thought about the Messiah in this way. And we see this in the second aspect of Cleopas's answer to Jesus about what things they were talking about. Aspect number two, a shaken hope. A shaken hope. Cleopas says, But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Now understand, when he uses the word redeem there, he's likely using it in a way that's a little bit different than the way we use it now. Because still at this point... He's thinking of redemption in the sense of a a warrior king who was coming into Jerusalem to deliver the Jews from Roman oppression. He was expecting Jesus to come into town, overthrow the Romans, and set up a new kingdom, right? So when he says, we were hoping he was going to redeem Israel, he's saying, we thought he was coming in to take over and usher in this new righteous kingdom. And so this crucifixion of Jesus dashes all of their hopes of him as the redeemer. How can he possibly be the warrior king when he just died on a cross? You can sense the despondency in this man's voice as he expresses the reality that all of his hopes seem to have been unfounded. But of course the irony again is the fact that Jesus actually has accomplished a redemption that's far beyond what these men expected. Because in dying on the cross, Jesus redeemed them in the sense that he took the full wrath of God so that they could be reconciled first to God and then later would return as the king that they expected. But not before redeeming them from their sins. He goes on to explain, indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Now, some read that and they think that Cleopas is still hoping of a resurrection, but we see later in the text that he actually doubts the account of these ladies and Peter and John. He still doubts the resurrection. So I, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying this is a, it's settling in now that this is the real reality. It's been it's the third day. Since these things have happened, he's really gone. He really died. The Messiah's really been murdered. Brings us to a third aspect of his explanation, a perplexing development. Verse 22, Cleopas finishes his comments by saying, but also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Now, these men don't seem to yet believe the account of the resurrection. They're just really perplexed by what this means. It's tied their mind in a knot, and they're struggling to untie it. They they just can't put the pieces together. But they have to admit that this, at least the empty tomb, has been verified because they say some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women had said, but him they did not see. Again, the scriptures tell us in the Gospel of John that Peter and John went, they verified it, they saw, and they came back and said, yes, the tomb is, in fact, empty. But the reason that Cleopas is having a hard time believing this is because of the last little phrase that he says, but him they did not see. He says, yeah, the tomb is empty and... And the ladies even claimed that two angels spoke to them, but they didn't see Jesus. We still haven't seen him. As mysterious and perplexing as the empty tomb and the angelic vision are, these men will not be convinced until they see Jesus face to face. And this is where this story intersects our modern-day situation. To this day... Those who refuse to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ often justify their lack of faith on this same point of contention. We don't see him. To this day, we can go to Jerusalem and we can see the place, the very likely location of Jesus' tomb, and it's empty. We can walk the streets that Jesus walked. We can witness people's lives who have been radically transformed by the gospel, and yet though people may find Jesus interesting and even inspiring, they refuse to believe that he is God in human flesh, the Messiah who has brought redemption to his people from sin because they have not seen him. I'll believe it when I see it. Let me ask you, is that you this morning? Are you like these two men who say, but we haven't seen him? We haven't seen him. It's a wonderful story. It's it's perplexing. It's interesting, but until I see him, uh, I can't believe. If that's you this morning, let me encourage you to listen very carefully at this point in our text. If you've missed everything that I've said so far, please listen now as Jesus responds to this last statement. This is segment number five of their conversation, a stunning explanation. Jesus now responds. Verse 25, And he, that's Jesus, said to them, O foolish men, And slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Now, first of all, notice what Jesus does not do. This is really crucial. He does not lift the veil so that they can see that they're actually talking to Jesus. He doesn't physically show himself to them yet. After all, from our perspective, that might be the most logical thing for him to do. Say, we haven't seen him yet. Ta da, here I am. Right? Just show yourself and they'll believe. After all, these men have a lot of the details correct. It seems like their unbelief is just hinging on this one little point that they haven't seen him yet. But rather than revealing himself to them physically, he actually rebukes them for their unbelief. He calls them fools. He says, Oh, foolish, foolish men, slow of heart to believe. Now, just imagine the faces on these men at this response. You, you, this is a pretty strong response. They just came. You, you just called them fools. They're so thinking, hey, something different about this strange passenger that we had not picked up on before. This man speaks with authority, but it does beg the question: Why? Why does Jesus respond so harshly to them? It's because he's already given them all the evidence that they need to understand why he had to die on the cross and to believe that he would rise again. And you may say, what evidence? What evidence? Well, look back at the text. Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. You cannot miss the immense significance of what Jesus just said. Because he's rebuking these men as foolish and slow of heart to believe in the scriptures. I've already given it to you. In the scriptures, he's explaining that they have everything that they need. It's already been revealed to them by God in the Bible, and they've missed it. Listen to me, don't think for a moment that your unbelief in the gospel of Jesus Christ rests on the need for more evidence. God has given us verifiable and clear testimony to the reality of the gospel in the Bible. And the truth is, if you will not believe the Scriptures, then you would not believe even if Jesus were to appear before your very eyes. That's what the Scriptures teach us. It's not a matter of evidence. It's a matter of hard-hearted unbelief. The truths about Jesus are so clear in the Bible that Jesus goes on to make this statement. He says, "...was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory?" That word, was it not necessary, it's a a three-letter Greek word. It's the same word we translate, it was fitting in Hebrews we've been talking about. It was fitting for him to suffer. It was necessary for Christ to suffer. Why would he say that it was absolutely necessary for the Christ to suffer in this way and then enter into his glory? Why does Jesus say that? It was necessary because God has revealed it to us on the pages of Scripture, that he has ordained it to be this way before the world began, that this would be the plan of redemption. In fact, God has been revealing his plan to redeem humanity from sin since the very first sin took place. And we know this because of the comprehensive statement that Jesus says next, or what Luke says happened next. Look back at the text. Then "...beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures." Understand that Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, which we sometimes call the Pentateuch. The rest of the scriptures in the Old Testament are often referred to in the Bible in summary fashion as the prophets. When the scriptures say Moses and the prophets... That's a way of saying the entirety of what we call the Old Testament. So don't miss the immensity of this monumental moment. After rebuking these men for their foolish unbelief, Jesus systematically walked them through the entirety of the Old Testament, beginning in Genesis, all the way through Malachi, to show them how the scriptures testify of him. Oh, to have been a fly. In the dirt on that dusty road, to have heard that explanation. Jesus says the entire Old Testament, it points to me, and I'm gonna show it to you. The reason that that's significant is because these things about Jesus are explained in some cases thousands of years before they happen. They're contained at least hundreds, in some cases, thousands of years, they're told to us by the prophets before they happen. Through the miracle of prophecy in which God tells us what will happen years before it takes place, we have undeniable evidence of Christ, of Christ's life, of his divinity, of his death, and of his resurrection. God has given an undeniable witness in the scriptures of who Jesus is, of who we are, and how we can be reconciled to God through him. Listen, you don't need to visibly see Jesus in his resurrected form. You just need to understand the scriptures and believe the word of God as true. The witness of scripture is enough. And by God's design, it's all the evidence that most Christians will ever be given in this temporal life. By design. Listen, if, if seeing the resurrected Jesus was what was really required for us to have saving faith, don't you think... God would show us the resurrected Christ, and yet he's chosen not to do that. Think of this. Out of all the people that God has redeemed from the beginning of time, from Adam and Eve on, on to, to now and on into however long until the Lord returns, all those people that God has redeemed, how many of them, physically with their eyes, saw the resurrected Christ? How many? Roughly Five hundred. Just over 500. You say, well, how do we get that number? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance that I, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. In that text, we see that somewhere just over 500 people had the privilege of physically seeing the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrected body out of the millions that have been redeemed. Understand that Jesus here in this text does not consider those of us who haven't seen him in the flesh to be lacking in any way. Because the rest of us have all the witness we need in the scriptures. Perhaps you're tempted to think this morning, Oh, if only I could have been there to hear Jesus exposit the Old Testament and to show these men all the passages that point to him. And while I agree with you, that would have been amazing, and I would have loved to have been there as well, if that's how you're still thinking, you're still missing Jesus' point. We didn't have to be there to hear him explain all these things. We still have them. You have them. You have them in your lap. You probably have them on your phone and on your iPad and, and a thousand other places. We still have the things that Jesus told those men on that road that day. And you might say, well, then what did he tell them? What things did he reveal? Unfortunately, time will not allow us to go through every single Old Testament passage as Jesus likely did, but I can give you a good sampling so you can see there's plenty of evidence in the Old Testament prophecy of Christ. We see the promised seed of Eve in Genesis 3.15, that, that, that God would send a seed from the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. That's the first hint of the gospel message. We see in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12 that all the nations would be blessed through the seed of Abraham. We see the promised prophet from Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19 that one would rise up after him, the prophet of prophets. We see in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that there would become a, a descendant from David who would be an eternal king, an everlasting king. We see the virgin birth in Isaiah 7:14. We see that the Messiah would be divine in places like Isaiah 9 and Psalm 110 where he's called mighty God. We see that he would be a king in Psalm 2 in Zechariah chapter 9. We see that the Messiah would be rejected in Psalm 18, that he would be the stone the builders rejected and yet he would become the cornerstone. We see the suffering of Christ in Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Zechariah 12, 10. And we see the resurrection of Christ in Isaiah 53, 10, and Psalm 16, 10. And we see that the Messiah would go on to be glorified in Psalm 110 and many, many other places. In fact, from the very beginning of the Bible, God has been declaring one consistent message. And it's this. That in the beginning, God made us, in his image, morally perfect without sin, and yet we rebelled against him. And that rebellion, our sin, has caused us to be separated from God, and we rightly deserve his wrath for our sin. If God gave us what we deserved, we would be separated from him forever in hell. That's the truth. But the Bible also says that God, by nature, is a redeeming God. He's a gracious God. He's a loving God, and in his grace and kindness, he has sent his perfect son, who is God in human flesh, to live a perfect life, to live a life that we should have lived and that we failed to live, and then to offer his life as a sacrifice on the cross to pay for sin, to take the wrath of God upon himself for all of his people. And then he rose from the grave on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And the Bible says that anyone who will repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ will come to know him as Savior and Lord and Master. They'll be forgiven of their sins, even adopted into his family and called sons and daughters. This is the message of the gospel. It begins all the way back in the garden. It continues on into today. And into eternity, we will be singing the glories of this resurrected Christ who's revealed on the pages of Scripture. And one day, our faith will be sight. But until that day, we have all we need in the Scriptures. He has revealed himself to us perfectly. Friend, come today. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is real. He really lived. He really suffered and he really rose. And he's a good Savior. No one who puts their faith in him will be disappointed. But there will be many who do not who will. Don't reject this wonderful good news of a Savior in Jesus Christ. If you're a believer here this morning, as we close our time together, I want you to think about just one simple application of this truth and that is this trust god's testimony in scripture trust god's testimony in scripture christian god's word is sufficient in fact jesus believed it to be so sufficient that he refused to reveal himself to these men in physical form long enough for them to understand that they already had all they needed in the bible You don't need some new revelation from God. You don't need Jesus to appear to you in your bedroom. You just simply need to open your Bible and behold Christ in Scripture. As the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you as a Christian illuminates the truth, we see Christ on the pages of Scripture. There will be a day soon enough when we will behold Him face to face. But don't miss the treasure of beholding Him every day of your life here in the Word of God. And hold on to the resurrected Christ as you hold on to the truth of Scripture. And one day we will rejoice together around his throne as we see him face to face. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for this account of these two men on this simple, dusty road having a conversation that turned into a monumental moment that solidifies our faith in the resurrection. And it solidifies our faith as those who live on this side of the cross, who don't have the privilege of seeing your physical face, and yet we have the privilege of seeing you in the scriptures. The Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit, you are Abba, Father. We know that you are our Savior, God and King. We worship you with joy in our hearts, longing for the day when our faith will be sight. But we do not see ourselves as deficient because you've given us a sure witness of yourself. Help us, Lord, to love you more, to proclaim you more, so that others might come to know you. We ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.